Good morning. It's a great joy and privilege to be here this morning and to preach to you this morning. When Stephen asked me to preach on Reformation Day, I said, great, do I get 95 points in my sermon? And Stephen said, yes, so fasten your seatbelts. Well, no, don't worry about it. But because it's Reformation Day, I want to start my sermon by reading something from Germany. It's actually a letter to the editors of a church newspaper that I found a few, a few weeks ago. And the letter goes like this. When I was 18, they sent me to the battlefront in the West. The Allied forces, and that includes the U.S. Army, had almost reached the border between Germany and Belgium. Shooting went on day and night. I was on night watch when all hell broke loose. A shell exploded close to me and a splinter shot through my right shoulder. The soldier at my side provided first aid on me and called the medics, and they drove me off to the closest tent with a team of doctors. From the shots that had hit it, the roof of the ambulance was blotched with holes through which I could see the stars in the sky. While I was lying in the car, I prayed for the first time in my life, God... If you get me out of this safe, I will believe in you. Again and again, I repeated this one sentence. God, if you get me out of this safe, I will believe in you. The doctors decided to cut off my right arm and shoulder. And had I survived the operation despite the huge loss of blood... I would have been a poor, miserable cripple, not even able to wear an artificial arm. Suddenly, one of the medics dropped an instrument on my right hand, and it jerked. A coincidence? The chief chief doctor immediately called, Stop! There is still life in his hand. Bring him to a hospital where they can operate on him properly. In the hospital, I woke up by a shock. The man in the bed next to me, who had lost both legs, had smuggled a gun into the room and killed himself. While I was given painful saltwater infusions, I prayed that same sentence over and over and over. God, if you get me out of here safe, I will believe in you. Months later, my wound was healed. My promise to God I have kept, and I am joyful about that. So there is a man in deep misery pleading with God for help, and God hears him and saves him. And this experience and the deep joy over it are the link between this man and World War II and the woman, Hannah, that we have heard about from First Samuel. 
And listen to what Samuel says about Hannah as the story goes on. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read Hannah's song, and I would like to ask you to stand up as we listen to the word of God. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts, lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Father in heaven, we adore you for how powerful and mighty you are. Lord, we're even terrified by how powerful you are. And therefore, Lord, we beg you that you, you come into our lives and you reign over it, that you have mercy over us and you acknowledge us as your children. Please be with us now, Lord, as you want to talk to us and open our hearts and minds. Amen. You may be seated. A young woman, childless for many, many years of her marriage, a young woman who suffers from the disappointment of what at her time necessarily was regarded a wasted life because a female life with no children in her age, was a wasted life. She suffers from the quiet reproach by her husband, husband, Elkanah. And she suffers from being openly and loudly sneered at every day by her opponent, Penina, the other wife, the second wife of Elkanah. And you can imagine what went on in that household, right? Every morning when Hannah met Penina, Oh, look, Hannah, have you seen what little Elkanah Jr. has learned today? Oh, isn't he sweet, my little Elkanah Jr.? Oh, Hannah, I'm so sorry you can't have children. What a pity. 
Can you imagine what that did to that woman and how she suffered? And so in a great pain and despair, Hannah goes and pours out her heart to God. God hears her prayer. She bears the son she has longed for. And she sings this song of joy. My heart rejoices and my horn is exalted. And if this were all that this text is about, it would be very edifying. It would be very nice as a story. And yet, I tell you, it would be very inconsequential and very irrelevant. The title of my sermon this morning would be, Pray to the Lord and He will give you victory over all your suffering. And the sermon would fail because it wouldn't have an honest answer to the question, and what about all these other women? Then in Israel, and the woman even in this church, who have prayed for a child for years and years and years, and they don't have a baby. And what about all these other men who prayed to God, get me out of this! in the middle of the battle, and they bleeded to death in the trenches. But you know, this is not what, this is not all that this text is about. And the title of my sermon is not, The Lord Gives You Victory. The title is, The Lord Reigns. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's really important that you look closely I don't know if you've ever realized that. Well, it is really important when you read the Song of Hannah. Because when you look closely, you realize that Hannah does not celebrate the birth of her son with the song. At the time when she sings the song, the child is weaned. And in Hebrew custom, that would have meant the child was now approximately seven or eight years old. His birthday is long ago, and they've celebrated it many times. It's not the birthday that is being celebrated here. Hannah sings this song on the day when she loses her son. Because on this day, Hannah does something which seems totally crazy. Totally crazy so crazy from a normal human perspective that Elkanah, her husband, have you heard what he said? He said, well, you do what you think is right. I don't know. That's what he said. I don't understand what you're doing, Hannah. But if you think it's right, you go ahead. And so what is she doing? She's giving her son back to the Lord. She returns the treasure of her life, the one that she had longed for for years, to the Lord. And in plain words, that means Hannah makes herself childless again. She goes back into a wasted life with no children in the moment when she gives up her son to God. And so what does the text say? It's, 
it doesn't say Hannah's heart rejoices over her child. It says Hannah's heart rejoices in the Lord. Her horn, that is her strength, is exalted not because she finally has become a mother. It is exalted in the Lord. Hannah is joyful not because she has a son, for indeed she has just given away her son. She is joyful because of the Lord's salvation. Neither her child nor the end of her suffering are at the center of this song. The Lord is at the center. And so we see that instead of holding fast to what she had desired for years and years and years in her life, Anna gives it up. She releases it. And in doing so, She's saying, Lord, I put the one who saved my life, and therefore I put my life into your hand. And Lord, I want you to reign over his life and over my life. And this is again the connection between the woman Hannah and the man in the war. Because what else does it mean when this man prayed, God, I will believe in you. If not, I want you to reign over my life if you get me out of this. What else does it mean? I kept my promise. If not, I laid my life into the hands of God. And from then on, God was my king and reigned over my life. In the biggest crisis of his life, this man makes this the headline of his life, the Lord reigns. And the question this morning is, what is the headline of your life? Now, you have to know this God well to make this the headline of your life, the Lord reigns. And therefore, Hannah's song describes God. She sings, he is a God of knowledge. Now, in the Old Testament, knowledge is a word for very intimate relationship. Have you heard what the text said? Elkanah knew his wife and she had a baby. That's what knowledge is. To be so intimate that new life springs from it. God is a God of knowledge, which means he intimately knows his people. He knows the deepest corners of our hearts. Anna says he weighs the actions of his people. Now, can you imagine what it means that God weighs Bob's trip to to the Chicago Opera yesterday? He looks carefully at what Bob thought. And he has every good and every bad intention in view. And he weighs one against the other. God holds everyone accountable for his deeds and his words. God owns the world, Hannah sings, Because he has created it and because he owns it, he will judge it, which means he will ultimately establish his order in it, the order of his creation in which good is good and in which there's no place 
for not so good and certainly no place for bad. Now, that all may sound a bit abstract and theoretical. And so I ask myself, well, is Hannah's God, God Almighty, who's way far away there in the sky? Is God a God who sets his people on a track, sort of from a long distance on a track, and then they have to move? Is he a God who is far removed from his people, and yet he pulls all the strings, and he doesn't know and he doesn't care for what they feel? No. Hannah sings, he is a God who guards the feet of his saints. Now, his saints, that's not some super religious people. His saints is all the people who have entrusted their lives to him. And so, he is a God who knows every one of those who have entrusted their lives to him. And he holds, holds his hand under their feet so that they neither stumble nor fall. Now, do me a favor. Reach out to your foot. Please do. Don't be shy. People, that's how close God is. Okay? He's so close that he's constantly ready to put his hand under your foot if you stumble. And so what Hannah tells us is God is not a God who reigns from a far distance. God is a God who reigns from very, very close, very, very near. Hannah's song teaches us how we get to know the Lord through experience, by observation, and by taking him seriously. Experience. Hannah sings, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Now, here Hannah is talking about turning points in the lives of individual people. Turning points where God suddenly changes everything radically. Points where what was to be expected from a normal human point of view suddenly no longer holds. There is a man who radiates in his strength and he falls to the ground like a fallen tree, ready to die. And there is a useless arm, a piece of meat that we can just cut off and suddenly, it becomes a valid arm again. And there is a man who perhaps, maybe, could live as a miserable cripple. And suddenly, he can lead a normal life and have a wife and children and a job. There is a woman who was childless, and she has seven children. Now, here's a little math. First Samuel says that Hannah had five more children. So Samuel plus five makes six. Why does she say seven? Well, probably because she gave 
Samuel back to the Lord, and therefore he counted double. Okay? And also because six is a bad number for the Jews. Bob knows that. I mean, who wants to listen to Beethoven six, right? <laughs> and then Hannah says, the one who was full of pride and despised for the childless and used to flaunt her children in front of her eyes is suddenly doomed for disaster. And the Jewish legend about Penina is that over the course of the years, all her sons and daughters died. And so Penina died childless. So she's the one, she, the pride one, is the one who ended up with a wasted life. Now the question is, turning points like that, is that pure happenstance? Is it random coincidence? Or is it the intervention of God? Again and again, we're confronted with this question because we see this again and again in our lives, our own lives, in the lives of the people around us, in the lives of entire nations. Something suddenly happens which turns everything upside down, and we ask, well, just random. Or is it God who intervenes because that's what he wanted to and because he's the one who shapes every human life the way he wants And Hannah's answer is unambiguous. She says the Lord reigns by intervening in the lives of individual people and he makes them become what he has decided. That's the experience part. Now we turn to the observation part. So the the previous verses deal with concrete experiences with God. Now we turn to human life in general. And Hannah sings, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Now, you want to look carefully at this text and read it in Hebrew and not in English. And I'll help you a little bit with that. Okay? Because if you do, you realize that this is actually not a very good translation of the Hebrew grammar. The Hebrew grammar would be more appropriately translated something like this. Killing and making alive is the Lord. Or you could even say, the Lord is a killer and an alive maker. Because what the grammar has in view is not an individual act of God. It is describing what God is like all the time. What is the characteristic way of behavior of God? That's what we get from the grammar. Okay? It is his characteristic to kill and make alive. He does it all the time. It is his characteristic to bring down and to bring up. So these verses describe what God is like and primarily God is one who intervenes, who acts, who turns circumstances on their heads, who doesn't care about facts because he can change them radically. God is one who changes relationships radically all the time. 
And my feeling when I look at these verses is it's like I'm sitting in a roller coaster. God kills, makes alive, brings down, brings up, throws to the grave, makes alive, right? It's always down and up and up and down and down and up, always in the extremes. And it tells us this God is a God who is always in action. He kills whom he wants, even those who are fully assured of their lives. He makes alive whom he wants, even those who seem to be dying. God meets out riches and poverty, prestige and contempt as he likes. And so Hannah tells us you have to observe the, the world with, your, with proper eyes. And if you do, you recognize how the Lord constantly acts in the lives of individuals and in the history of entire peoples. The Lord reigns. And primarily that means for us, there is no safety for us. There is no safety. There is no spot on this earth where I can stand and say, I'll just stand still and the Lord reigns everywhere, but not here. No. He acts and intervenes constantly. There's nothing we can rely on and count on except this. Everything will turn out the way God wants. The Lord reigns. He decides to intervene and turn away a disaster. Or he decides not to intervene and allow the disaster to happen. The Lord reigns in a tent when an instrument falls on a, an apparently dead limb. In a bedroom, when a woman conceives, and also in New York City on 9-11, the Lord reigns. We cannot tame the Lord. We cannot make him forever, dear God. That's not what he's like. We cannot use him for our interest, nor can we make him do what we want. Hannah sings, there is none holy like the Lord. He's beyond all our imagination. He reigns a sovereign, powerfully, giving no account for his doing to anybody. What a frightening God. We ought to be terrified if we realize what God is exceedingly powerful, incomprehensible, and therefore completely unpredictable. We must be terrified by such a God. And this is why Hannah sings, Don't talk, to talk no more so proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Consider what you are compared to him. Or as James 4 says, do not say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? A vapor. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, Ilse and Benny and I will be alive on Friday and get on an airplane. But people, it's possible that he doesn't will. And he reigns. If we take that seriously, there is no room at all for self-assurance and complacency 
in our thinking. If we take that seriously, we recognize that we're constantly walking on extremely thin ice. And that ice might break any moment if it's not for God to hold his hand under our feet. And the most terrifying of all is he knows the deepest corner of your heart. And he weighs every one of your actions. So, how do we react to that God? That is probably, no, that is the most important question in your life. Hannah's picture of the Lord as a rock illustrates the point. Imagine a huge rock rolling down a hill. Now, you can decide to stand in the way to hold it or to run full force against it. Either way, that rock will smash you. And then you're gone, right? The adversaries of the Lord, those who do not acknowledge his reign, shall be broken in pieces. Hannah sings, they do not prevail against him by their own strength. But that's only part of the picture of the rock. The other part of the picture of the rock is you can go to a rock for protection. And to go to God for protection requires us to take seriously his claim to be all-powerful and his promise to care for his people. And you know, if you've never taken his power seriously, if you've never been terrified to your bones by what God is, you cannot trust him. You have to realize how terribly powerful he is in order to be able to really trust him. To go to the Lord for protection requires us to make the words, the Lord reigns the motto of our lives. If we don't want to be crushed by the rock, we have to put ourselves under it. Knowing that the rock is so big, so heavy, it could crush me any moment and yet trusting that it won't because the Lord knows his saints. It is a very risky endeavor to do that for nobody knows what God will do to him. As Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, you know, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. If we could domesticate the Lord, if we could... Make him nice, nicely behave, put him in a box. We don't need faith. We don't need trust. Because we can control him. The point is, unless we fear his power, we have no need for faith. To make the Lord reigns the motto of our lives means to acknowledge his incomprehensible power and to trust in him using it for our good. And doing that involves two things. First, to confess our sins to him. And not just sin in general. Sin very specific. I learned something over the last few weeks with Tim. I learned that I have to pray to God and say, Lord, I've been very selfish 
when I failed to look at my daughters. I've been a very bad father to my daughters. And that was sin. And I'm sorry for it, Lord. And that's painful. But we have to do it because otherwise we let sin reign our lives, not God. But we want God to reign our lives. And then secondly, we make the Lord reigns the motto of our lives by laying our lives into his hand. Lord, I want you to be the master and the king of my life from now on every day. It requires us to take seriously his infinite power and his promise that he will guard the feet of his saints to do that. And you know, these two things, that we've confessed our sins and that we've laid our hands, our lives in the hands of this great God, this is what we publicly confirm in baptism. And so when Daniel and Selina are being baptized later in the service, I want you to know that what you're doing is something very fearful, frightening. You're dealing with a terrifying God, but also a loving God. And the good thing is, he gives you brothers and sisters that help you deal with this relationship and keep you in it. The Lord reigns, making that the motto of your life is a decision Nobody can make for you. And the decision is obviously necessary because Hannah could have, been, could have done the logical, the natural, right? She could have taken little Sam and become little Penina in the village. Hey, sisters, have you seen what little Sammy has learned? Isn't he sweet? She could have lived for the rest of her life in the feeling, I finally did it. And you know what? She decided completely otherwise. She decided that it wasn't her who did it. It was the Lord who did it. And she decided that the success of her life was not dependent on having a child. She decided that God would decide whether her life was a success or would end up in misery. And therefore, she was ready to relinquish what she had desired for so long and give it back to God and say, God can give me more children or he can, me give, can give me no more. It's up to him. But I want him to reign my life. And you see, there Hannah becomes a great example for us. Because if she could trust God to the point of giving back to him what she desired for so, so much, shouldn't we be able to leave with God what we desire for so long and do not obtain? You see, and isn't that the answer to the question, what about the women who don't have babies after praying for years and years? To say, Lord... I give that desire back to you because I trust that you have good plans for my life. 
And I trust that you have good things in store for me, even if it is not a child. That's what it means to say, the Lord reigns. The Lord guards the feet of those who trust him. And that includes those who trust him and don't have children. And that wounded man we heard of, he also had to make a decision. When he was dismissed from the hospital, he could have done what was logical and natural. See his friends and say, hey, have you heard what a lucky man I am? That scissor fell on my arm and here I am. Isn't that great? What I did? He could have lived the life that most of his generation did. Sort of high speed into the economic miracle of Germany in the 50s. Forget the misery of the war. Eat and drink to your heart's content. Build a house. Have a family. Enjoy what you're doing. But the man decided otherwise. He decided to stick to his promise to God. He decided to trust God and to rely on his guidance always. And I can tell you his life with God has not been an easy one. A few years later, still at a young age, that man was forced to take up a career he never wanted. He had very different dreams of himself. But he was forced to become become something for family reasons that he never wanted. And then he was in that job and he saw people around himself being successful and grow big bellies because they were eating. Well, he also grew a big belly. But anyway, he saw people being very successful and he never succeeded. And in the end, he utterly failed professionally. And then for years and years and years, he dreamt of creating something, engineering something that would be a legacy. And it's not there. And you know what? His life's motto remains, the Lord reigns. And he says, today at a good old age, I'm joyful about that. And so like him and like Hannah, you cannot escape the decision to put your life under these words or to put your life against them. The Lord reigns. God's promise to you is, trust me, I will guard you and you will rejoice. And the question is, do you take him seriously? And what do you decide? Hannah's song is placed at a critical song, a critical point in the history of Israel. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, the book of 1 Samuel follows immediately the book of Judges. The reformers kind of slip Ruth in between, which confuses us a little bit. But if you look at the old text, This is what it is. And the book of Judges ends with the words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you read the book, that's exactly what happened. They didn't have a king. Again and again they found themselves in misery, oppression by their enemies. And then they cried out to the Lord, 
Lord, help your people. And God was merciful and he helped them and the enemies were driven out. And then God gave them a judge, a person who brought order into their lives. And so for a while then they would follow the word of God and then they started slipping away again until finally it was again everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now Samuel was the last of the judges of God. And when he was old, the elders of Israel came to him and asked him, make for us a king to judge us like all the heathens. You see, they finally wanted to be like all the heathens. They finally wanted to get rid of the Lord. They finally wanted someone from among themselves to be king over them. Somebody who was weak. Somebody who was corrupt. Somebody who was predictable and could be abused. Somebody whose eyesight stops here and doesn't go into the heart. That's what they wanted. And God says, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And then we see that God grants them to do as they wish. And Samuel anoints Saul, king of Israel, a jerk. Complete failure. And then Samuel anoints David, king, a man after God's own heart. And then we see through the books of history that Israel rises to a powerful kingdom and then gradually decays and falls apart and the people go into exile and part of the people come back and they rebuild Judah and Jerusalem and then finally the true king of Israel arrives, Jesus Christ and his own people put him to the cross. The Lord kills and he makes alive. Hannah sings. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. And so long before the first king of Israel is anointed, Hannah sings, the Lord gives strength to his king and power to his anointed. And what a prophetic word that is at a point of history when his people get ready to turn their backs on God and say, we want to get rid of you. Right? 20 years well, no, 80 years before that happens, Hannah sings that song. There's still no king in Israel, and she sings, the Lord gives strength to his king. And so this song affirms the Lord reigns even when his people reject him. While the people are looking for a king after their desires, God already prepares a king from his, of his own heart. David. And so thus it will be in the history of Israel again and again the people stray away from the Lord and then God creates a king who pulls them back to himself. Hannah's words confirm the Lord's claim for power. And it's a word of consolation for all who trust him. The Lord reigns even when his people are unfaithful. 
And I think it's especially in times like ours when only few people care to take the Lord seriously and trust him, that song is a source of encouragement. The Lord reigns as long as he does. The hope remains that one day he will intervene again and call his people, the church of Jesus Christ, back to himself. Now, the Reformation, which we remember today, is a case in point because of all the things that Martin Luther was. He was a man who took God seriously and who was terrified by the power of God. And who was a, he was a man who was acutely aware of his own sin. And from those two things, Martin Luther could not bear the hypocrisy of his church at the time. The fact that the church had tried to domesticate God and abuse him for power and wealth and greed. And so that became the Reformation. And today... Are there any places where people use the gospel to promote wealth, glory, greed, and influence? Over Germany, the Lutheran Church meddles in every affair of politics and economics. If we have wage negotiations of the metal workers, a Lutheran bishop has a word for that. You can be very sure. Because they have their fingers in every game and every pot to be influential. And now you go and you read every sermon preached in the Lutheran church today on Reformation Day, you will not find the word sin. You will not find the word confess. Because the Lutheran church over there leaves the people completely alone and in despair with their sin. And I'm so glad that your pastors don't do that with you. They want to be influential. And we need to pray to the Lord to give us more men who take God and his word seriously. God is faithful even if his people abandon him. The man whose story I told you made that experience too. Under the Nazis... Germany, his nation, had completely and openly turned away from God. They had made their Führer their God. They prayed hail to him because he was their God. That man's father was a very honorable man, respected in society, who had not even the smallest room for God in his life. Well, perhaps Christmas Eve, when respectable men go to church in Germany. That man's mother was a very lovely woman, a person with a great sense of all things beautiful in life and no relationship with Jesus Christ. The word Jesus never came over her lips. You know, 
And despite of that, God did not do what was natural and logical to that family, which would have been to abandon them and forget them. And instead, God gave the greatest gift to that son of that family in the most critical moment of his life, the ability to turn to him for the first time in his life and pray, God, if you get me out of here safe, I will believe in you. And God saved him. And he believed in him, the man. And today, he's joyful about that. The Lord reigns even when his people turn their backs on him. He will not be unfaithful. And you know, people, that's why we cannot help but make a decision for him or against him. The Lord invites you today to engage with his great, terrifying, incredible, and unpredictable power. The Lord invites you to trust in him because he lovingly guards the feet of all his saints. And the Lord invites you to relinquish what you think gives you safety, what you think gives meaning to your life, and to make him the center of your joy. The Lord promises you will rejoice. And my heart's wish for all of you who are here is, I wish that you will rejoice, not because you have what you desire, but because the Lord is in the middle of your life and the Lord reigns your life. Amen.